Thank you, Barry, for leading that song. I think that song does uh, fit our theme very well. I appreciate how that song takes you through from, from none of thee and all of self to none of self and all of thee. And it's, uh, it's neat how the writer did that in, in stages. And I noticed that verse 3 particularly, uh, less of self and more of thee, is really our theme stated. But our goal should be none of self. And, and all of thee. But may that be our goal uh, continually. I want to ask you to open your Bibles uh, to the book of Job this evening. The book of Job. Or look it up on your device. Uh, Tucker and I have embarked upon a study of some uh, Old Testament characters. And uh, Job is the subject for this evening. As you're turning there, this question often accompanies a study of the book of Job. Why do bad things happen to good people? And if you Google that, you're going to find a lot of different answers and even books that have been written addressing that topic. And what we see in the book of Job is a good man. In fact, as we embark upon, we're going to be studying, it's going to be an overview of the book of Job. And you may be thinking, okay, that's 42 chapters, David. How are you going to do that? Well, we're going to spend some time, some special time in the first couple of chapters I'm going to cover the, the middle section very briefly and then focus in on the final chapters of the book of Job, just so you won't worry about me covering 42 chapters. But we see, we'll see instantly that Job is a good man and also that some very bad things happen to him. But I will go ahead and say this. I don't know that the book of Job answers this question. Why do bad things happen uh, to good people? But yet, that is the subject. And we, we know more than Job did as he's going through these troubles. But watch how he handles it. And then watch God's, God's message to him at the end. And then we'll glean some lessons uh, from, from the book. But we're approaching this study with this idea that it's one of the greatest struggles in the Old Testament. And again, this question of of human suffering and why do bad things happen to good people is a question that plagues people even today. Job seems to have lived about 2,000 years before Christ. And many believe that Job is the oldest book of the Old Testament. We find as you read in chapter 1 that Job is set during what is called the patriarchal age, father rule. Uh, you'll read, we're not going to cover these verses in particular, but in that first middle section of chapter 1, where Job's seven sons and three daughters have feasts together. After every feast, Job is careful to offer a sacrifice to God on their behalf, <clears throat> just in case one of them cursed God. But that's, that's a, that adds a dimension of spirituality to Job. And just underscores how good and how righteous a man he was. So let's begin in chapter 1. And notice how Job is identified. There was a man in the land of, of us whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. And one who feared God and shunned evil. Just that first verse tells us so much. He is a strong moral person. And a deeply righteous person, a strong believer, feared God and shunned evil. Verse 2, and seven sons and three daughters were born to him, and his possessions were 7,000 sheep 
3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Take note, don't, I'm not asking you to memorize, but take note of the numbers of the, the possessions that he has. But know from, from this, these verses, Job is abundantly blessed. The greatest of all the people of the East. Presumably that referring to there was no one else like Job in the blessings that he had. Verses 6 and following, 6 through 11, is a very unique text um, where the sons of God gather. And we understand these sons of God to be angels. This is an angelic gathering. And watch what happens. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan, who also came, also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Isn't that interesting? The sons of God, the angels appear before God. And Satan, uh, the fallen angel, if you will, is among them. And it's not a wonder to me why God would address Satan in particular. From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. It's an interesting study, this is a side note, to study about Satan uh, in the book of Job. And what do we learn about our adversary, which is the literal meaning of the term? And one thing we learn is that Satan is not omnipresent. He's not present everywhere all the time. And even from the language, I've been, I've been traveling around. Um, it reminds you of the 1 Peter 5 verse 8. As a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's Satan's work, but he's not omnipresent. And let me go ahead and point this out. He's not omnipowerful. He doesn't have all power either. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And notice, this is the Lord saying this about Job. That's how good a man he is perhaps well esteemed among his peers, but this is God saying these things about him. Satan answers and says, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. In other words, it's no wonder he's such an upright man, God-fearing man, because you've blessed him so abundantly. And here is Satan's proposal. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. Why does God allow Satan to do this? Notice again, Satan is not omnipowerful. He's not om omnipotent. God gives him permission to take these things away from Job, but also sets a boundary. This far you can go, but no further. It doesn't answer why God allows Satan to do this. And hence the question, why do bad things happen uh, to good people? So watch what happens, and I'll summarize the next few verses. Here are Job's losses. 
His oxen and donkeys were raided by the Sabaeans, and the servants watching them were killed. And here's a one a lone servant who escapes, and he comes and tells Job about these losses. And then the next section will begin, and while he was still speaking, he gets this news, that his sheep and the servants keeping them were destroyed by fire. While he was still speaking, this lone servant that escaped, his camels were taken by the Chaldeans and the servants were killed. And again, while that servant, that lone servant was still speaking, he receives this news, which had to be the most devastating, that his children were killed when a great wind destroyed the house in which they were feasting. And as you read through chapter 1, this appears to happen in a single day. In a single day. And you put yourself in Job's shoes, and none of us ever want to do that. But you, you wonder, how could a person handle this? How could a person who, who believes in God is striving to live the kind of life that, that God wants him to live... And he receives this devastating news that not just his possessions, not as his wealth gone, but even his children, all ten, have died. And it's even more amazing to see Job's response. He arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. And worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Notice verse 22 In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. Again, we know more than Job does at this point. We know that God knows who he is and that God has blessed him and God has commended him and God has even suggested, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Look at his faithfulness. And Satan has challenged that by saying, well, no wonder he's faithful. You've blessed him with everything. But take that away and he'll curse you to your face. So he starts taking those things away. And what does Job do? He worships. And he doesn't charge God with sin or charge him with wrong. He doesn't sin or charge God with wrong. So there's another angelic gathering in chapter 2. God asks Satan again, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity Although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. Despite the fact that you took those things away from him, still he's staying faithful to me. Have you considered my, ser my servant Job? Satan, diabolical Satan, the adversary. Answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. 
He extends the boundary. Okay, Satan, you can inflict torture on him, physical torture, but you cannot take his life. Again, he allows Satan to go that far, but no further. Still doesn't answer the question, why is God allowing this to happen? So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, verse 7, and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Some of us have had skin conditions. I remember in first grade having chicken pox. My mama telling me, don't scratch those bumps, don't scratch those. And they, just hearing that instruction just made me want to scratch even more. But boils from the head of his, crown of his head to the bottom of his feet. I won't go into details that I've read about that. But he's absolutely miserable. Job's wife sees him in this condition. And you know the verse, verse 9. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? She says to him, curse God and die. And I maintain that there's a bizarre type of compassion here to me it's like Job's wife is saying why don't you just put yourself out of your misery and curse God and let him take your life Job's response you speak as one of the foolish women speaks shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity in all this Job did not sin with his lips. Job doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know about this cosmic debate going around about him, but yet, despite all of the torture that he's going through, he's not turning his back on God. Then Job's friends come. In the midst of his misery, I like this statement from Paul Rogers, there appears the friends of Job Notice these two words, to console and condemn. First, they seek to console. Watch this. When Job's three friends, verse 11, heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own, pla own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Naamathite. For they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, notice that, from a distance they see Job and they already don't recognize him. They lifted up their voices and wept and each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his grief was very great. And I believe by so doing, that was a measure of comfort for Job. Just by being there. Just by being with him. Without even saying a word. Because when they opened their mouth, that's when the comfort stopped and the condemning began. The reasoning of Job's friends, Paul Rogers summarizes, is this. Since the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer, Job's great sorrow was the result of his great sin. Job, what have you done 
for God to be punishing you like this. And there's debates. Okay, here's the, the central portion of the book. From about uh, chapter 3 to through, verse, through chapter 37. First, there's these debates between these three friends and Job. Uh, they basically say God doesn't punish the, the righteous. Well, in fact, Eliphaz's argument, let's let that summarize all of the arguments that are given. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent? Or where were the, up, or when, where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. You have plowed iniquity and now you're reaping trouble, Eliphaz says to Job. And the other friends echo that same theology. It's interesting at the end of the book, God addresses Eliphaz and says, you're wrong. You have misrepresented me. But that's what, that's what they believe. Job, you must have done something horrible for God to be punishing you like this. Job's replies will summarize those as well. Uh, as the hours stretched into what seemed eternal days, the days into interminable weeks with no relief or respite forthcoming, Job began to wrestle with himself and with God, Paul Rogers writes. And then I included this sentence for your view, viewing. He blew out hot and cold. In other words, there were times when he was uh, praising God. And there were times where he was questioning God and bemoaning the day of his birth. In fact, here are two statements. Job 3 verse 3, may the day perish on which I was born and the night in which it was said a male child is conceived. Chapter 10, verse 18. Why then have you brought me out of the womb, he asked God. Oh, that I might have perished, and no eye had seen me. It would be better for me if I had never been born. And you read Job. And as you read what he says, there are times when we say, Job. How can you say that to God? There are other times when he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. But through it all, God is big enough to handle our, our questions, isn't he? He's big enough to handle our disillusionment. He's big enough to handle our petitions, our questions of why. Why is this happening to me? What, what have I done? But he maintains, I'm not perfect, but I haven't done anything worthy of this. And yet heaven remains silent at this point. The air is just filled with Job's friends giving their reasoning as to how this has happened. And Job knows you don't know what you're talking about. And so we come to chapter 38. After a long series of charges and complaints from Job, God speaks. God speaks. Look at 38 verse 1 with me. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. 
or who stretched the line upon it? And even with those questions, you see, Job is out of his league. No, Job can't answer those questions. No, Job wasn't there when God created the world. Job can't answer those questions, nor can he answer the series, a long series of questions that God continues to ask him. Where were you? Or can you explain this? Can you accomplish this? And it's designed to convey how powerful and wise the Creator is. And what Job does not know. And that section ends with this question from the Almighty. Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? You see, Job is humble. He can't answer those questions. They're way too deep for him. Instead, Job says this, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. My paraphrase is this, Let me shut my mouth. God, I've spoken of things I'm not, even able to understand, let me close my mouth. But as you look at the book of Job and as you watch how he handles it, even, again, not knowing exactly what's going on, he, he hangs on to his integrity. And throughout the entire ordeal, he did not do what Satan insisted that he would do. He never cursed God. He never charged God with wrong. He did not sin. In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. Chapter 1 and verse 22. Now we get to the last chapter, Job 42. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. If you remember those numbers back in chapter 1 of all of the number of camels and sheep, you'll see twice as many here. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning, for he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons. And three daughters. I hope I've never said this in the past. But as long as I live and am of sound mind. I will not say it. I hope I've never said that God replaced. His children. Because you can't. Here is, I'm going to share this with you, see what you think. I believe God gave Job the ability to love again. To love again. By blessing him with those children. In fact, the last few verses say, After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So Job died old and full of days. And I suspect 
not only able to love again, but able to experience joy again. Here are some lessons from Job amongst questions that we still have. Here are some lessons from Job. Number one, we ought not insist upon a full explanation of human suffering. You know, troubles may be the result of our own choices. Sometimes we mess up. Uh, we reap what we sow. Sometimes we can trace back our troubles to some decisions that we made. Sometimes troubles may be the result of someone else's wrongdoing. But some troubles will have no explanation this side of heaven. Paul Rogers said this, and I appreciated it. The man who is bound and determined to have a reason for any and every tragedy will only be confused and distraught. Mortal life is far, far too complicated for simple, casual explanations. So don't insist upon a full explanation of human suffering. And I would say that if we're going through it, or if we're trying to console someone else who is going through a difficult time, please learn, let's learn from Job's friends and don't try to offer an explanation. Number two, it's possible to be good, godly, and righteous even when discouraged. And there are times, granted, that we read what Job said and we think, that doesn't sound very righteous to me, but understand he never sinned against God. He questioned, but he never sinned against God, charged God with wrong. He maintained his faith and still his resolve uh, to be obedient to what he understood God, God's will to be for him. Number three, when life gets tough, draw near to God. When life gets tough, draw near to God. Job wanted to have an audience with God. He wanted to speak to, to God as a man to a man in order for God to give an explanation as to what was happening. And so Job could appeal his case, state his case. And again, he questioned God, but he never turned his back on God. But we know that many times when people go through difficult times, they turn their back on God. And listen, they turn their back on the only one who could ever help them. The only one who can help us endure the difficult times of life is our God. But many would turn again, away from him. The psalmist says, I will lift my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Number four, consider the end intended by the Lord. This is my greatest offering from a study of the book of Job. 
consider the end intended by the Lord. And all I'm doing is highlighting what's in the text already. I go to James 5 verse 11 and notice what James says. You remember James and what he's doing in this text. We count them blessed who endure. And he's holding up Job as one of those. You have heard of the perseverance. And I think that's a better word than patience. Patience so many times has an idea of being passive. Job wasn't passive, was he? He persevered. He endured. You've heard of the perseverance of Job. And now watch this. And seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. That phrase is what has captured me. You've seen the end intended by the Lord. And where does that take us in the book of Job? I think it takes us to, to the last chapter, Job 42, where God blesses him in the end, gives him twice as much possessions as he had, and even blessed him with ten children and the ability to see his grandchildren, great-grands, to four generations. The ability to love, to have a family. And what that tells us is what we see in Job chapter 1 and 2 is not the end intended by the Lord. That's not the end intended by the Lord. All that suffering and, and the anguish. <clears throat> the end intended by the Lord is what God does for Job at the end. And here is where I think we make application to our situation. <clears throat> the end intended by the Lord for you and me will be ultimately realized in heaven and not on earth. While we're on the earth, we can anticipate troubles. We can expect troubles. And we can expect that we won't always know why. If we've learned anything from Job, we've learned that. But if we've also studied Job carefully, we see the end intended by the Lord. And isn't the Lord basically saying to Job, as well as to us, hold on to me. Keep trusting in me. Keep following me. And all these things that trouble you and weigh you down and, and cause you misery, one day they're going to be no more. And one day you're going to see the end that I've always wanted for you. And that can be realized if we'll just hang on. Despite the questions, despite the doubts, hang on. Keep following him. And his promises will be realized. If you need the prayers of the church tonight, if you're ready to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, we invite you to come right now as we stand and sing.